Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are all very welcome to the Northwest, where the new tourist season is about to get underway, but it's facing new challenges. I am joined by my panel here this evening, Frank Feehan, TD, Finne Gale, Marion Harkin, Independent TD, Claire Ronan, Ocean FM broadcaster, and Anthony Gray, a local restaurateur. You're all very welcome to the programme, and we're delighted to be here in Sligo this evening. Uh, Claire, I'm going to start with you because... I was struck when I was in Sligo today, speaking to some local businesses, speaking to local taxi drivers, asking them about the tourism sector here. They said, we're really trying to push it in Sligo. We really feel it's you know, been undiscovered, but we're getting there. Well, we are getting there and it has been a long journey because Sligo would feel, and a lot of the people in Sligo would feel, that we have been somewhat forgotten. I mean, for a long time, we had no coach park, for example. So when coach tours came down into the northwest, they drove straight past Sligo and went to Donegal. Or they'd go to a restaurant on the road and wouldn't even come into the town. There's been an awful lot of work done by a lot of different organisations and, of course, Fulch Ireland in the area to increase the numbers in tourism. We do face challenges, absolutely, and I'm sure you're going to go through those in the programme tonight. But I spoke to a number of hoteliers today, and they're very optimistic about the tourist season ahead. Uh, of course, if the weather is nice over Easter, it will encourage more people to come. But a lot of people are holidaying at home now. And we're hoping that we'll get a big chunk of that into Sligo this year. So what role then does the tourism sector play to the local economy? How important is it? It is extremely important. We have, and you have Anthony here tonight, we have a number of really beautiful restaurants in the area. But what really sells Sligo is the beauty of mm. the place. And we're not overpopulated. Um, and we would like to be a bit... But we still have the beaches, empty, deserted, beautiful beaches. The scenery is incredible and the mountains and the walks. And Sligo County Council have done huge work here to promote the area and make it more tourist friendly. And they're hoping that the season kicks off now, what, between St. Patrick's Day and, and Easter, Easter weekend? Yes, and, it, and we actually really need to work very hard on extending our tourist season. You know, and a lot of the hotels do work in, on packages with the restaurants and there's a lot of the Sligo food trails. I could sit here all night with all you're, the people who are trying to promote the town. But uh, we are really hopeful for this summer that it will be a good tourist season. Okay. We need it. You do need it. But some of the, I suppose, challenges, concerns that have been expressed among some of the local businesses here is that a number of the tourist accommodation providers are no longer providing beds, do not have capacity because those beds are being provided um, for humanitarian aid for those who are seeking refuge from Ukraine or around the world. Yes, I, I happen to live just outside Ross's Point Village and we have a hotel in the village that has um, a number of um, Ukrainians living in it at the moment. Uh, we also have a school um, where, which would have been residential and there are a number there as well. So there's about 301 and 400 in the other, roughly, and there is the population of 838 in the village. So we've nearly doubled our population in Ross's Point with the Ukrainians. So they, they have taken up the hotel. Um, are there the other beds. hotels, other 
guest houses in that particular area? Uh, there are, yes, um, and some of them do have some Ukrainians. And then in Sligo, in other parts of the town, in Strand Hill and in the county, there are other bed and breakfasts that have Ukrainians in them as well. Okay, so the, the accommodation that has been provided uh, to those individuals who are seeking protection here is generally hotels, guest houses, B&Bs, is yes. it? Yes, there is some modular housing that's being built at the moment, but at the moment, yes, that is the case. Do we have any idea of figures? Uh, we have 1,400 in Sligo at the moment. 1,400 uh, Ukrainians in, in, Ukrainians. in Sligo. Uh, a population of? Uh, 65,000. Yeah, 65, yeah. 65, yeah. 65, okay. yeah. Uh, Anthony, you are a restaurateur. You have two restaurants right here in the centre of the town, busy restaurants. Uh, what is your market? Who is your market? I suppose my market is the domestic uh, market and also the overseas market. We rely heavily on them. This season, I always base it on, kicks off at the Masters, after the Masters golf. That's the way I've always done it. And uh, it kicks off then. And in fairness, we had a good St. Patrick's Day. It was very good. The town was buzzing. It was a great parade. So it kicks off from there on. And it really, right through the summer and then until the kids go back to school. And then it's more challenging then. But you, you cut your clock to measure the table, pardon the pun. Okay, so for you then, between what now St. Patrick's Day and the end of August, yeah. that's when you and your business tries to make hay. Absolutely, and like you really have to put your shoulder to the wheel and just make sure that everyone that comes into the town has a lovely experience and is well looked after. I suppose the challenges are, I am a little bit concerned, I'm a little bit worried, especially with the amount of refugees that we've taken in, especially in Sligo, because that has a snowball effect. What effect does it have? Well, you know, it has effect on every aspect of the economy because the tourists that used to come into the town, they can't get beds. So therefore, they're not going to eat my restaurant. They're not going to buy the pint of milk in the local shop or the newspaper. So it has a snowball effect on if they can't get bed nights here. And unfortunately, it is that. I think the government needs to maybe look at a slightly different approach because it will definitely affect tourism. We know that for a fact. You're saying that, that that's not debatable, that it will be impacted. You've no doubt about that. Without a doubt. It has to have an impact. If, if you're looking at, you know, the, the, the amount of beds that are going to be taken up and are taken up in between guest houses, B&Bs and hotels, like, the people can't come. You have a, a hotel in Ross's Point, as Claire mentioned, and, you know, that used to get a lot of golfers into it. Them golfers used to come into town, they used to drink in the pubs, they used to go out for meals, etc., etc. They used to go to the local pubs in the village of Ross's Point. That is no longer there for them. So they're going to take an alternative approach and they're going to book somewhere else where they will get accommodation. And that, then that town will benefit from them. But unfortunately, I think, you know, the government need to definitely take a different approach because it's going to have a massive effect on tourism. How do you think it's actually going to impact your books, your profit for this year? And what changes are you going to have to make to your business? Well, you're going to have to make sure that, you're, that you push yourself towards the domestic market and that you try and get more tourists in. You're constantly on social media trying to get that. You know, you're trying to get people to come to Sligo. We've done an amazing job in the last five to six years. We flipped it on, on its head and we are pushing Sligo to the forefront and the collaboration is perfect and it's working. But the big thing that we need to do is try and hold on to that. So you're worried about protecting the tourism industry that you've built up here in the local economy? Absolutely. And if these beds are taken up, there is no protection. 
because the beds are gone. So you're not going to have the tourists in. So as I said to you, it's a snowball effect. It's a, it's a ripple effect. And it, everyone gets hit with it. So it is a worrying factor. I, I am worried about it. I'm worried about will the tourists still come? And if they can't come, if they can't get the beds, will they still come? So we just have to keep on really pushing it and making sure that but Sligo is a beautiful destination. It has everything going for it, but we just need to get them here. Uh, Marion, what representations are you getting from your constituents? Do any of them share the concerns that Anthony voices here? Yes, they absolutely do. I've got lots of reps from constituents, particularly from Russ's point, also Bundorn, which is in our constituency as well. And I suppose Russ's point is a special case. There is one hotel. It's completely full of Ukrainian refugees. The, the main guest house is also full and some others. And the whole peninsula from Sligo out to Russ's point, about seven kilometres, as Claire said, about seven, eight, nine hundred. So the population of Russ's point has been doubled. And what people out there have said to me is that they're very welcoming and they, they, they care about the refugees. For example, the RNLI were very concerned that many of the refugees have never seen water before. So how do you protect them? How do you keep them safe? So, but allied to that, there are all the tourism businesses out there that relied on the tourists that would normally have stayed in the hotel in Ross's Point saying, where is our business going to come from this year? And you see, Claire, it's not even that the business would be lost this year. Some of those businesses will go. They will never come back. You actually think that businesses will go to the wall this year because well, tourists you Spain, have don't have accommodation? A business, a cafe, a restaurant, a water-based activity, uh, let's say in Ross's Point, are you going to pay the insurance costs? Are you going to take that risk and employ staff and have contracts not knowing that, you know, you're going to get people in? So it is a real challenge. And just one simple thing. Um, the population has almost doubled. There are no extra bus services. I mean, even that, getting people in, getting people out. And, and there is a sense that... Uh, there was no planning beforehand, it just happened, and that can happen in emergencies. I'm not saying everything has to be perfect, but subsequent to that, where are the plans to deal with the reality of life for people, both people who live there, but also the tourism businesses, how are they supposed to survive? And that will impact Sligo Town as well, because as, as Anthony said, the Lynx course out in Ross's Point, hugely popular, but if people can't stay, if they can't get accommodation, a ripple right. effect. Well, I just want to go to um, Fimber Filan, another business owner that I spoke to uh, a little earlier this evening, who has a different point of view. I began by asking him how he feels about the summer season ahead in Sligo Town. Uh, Finber, how do you feel about the tourist season ahead? I'd be quite optimistic about it, uh, along with a lot of my colleagues in business at Sligo. Sligo is a very diverse business offering. We have hospitality, retail, service sector, industrial, and we also benefit from the ATU campus in ATU Sligo. So we're really looking forward to a strong season ahead. There is concerns about the hospitality sector, but it's only one of the things we do in Sligo, and we do everything in Sligo very, very well. So I'm sure that if there is stress there, we will look after that in the rest of the sectors, and I think we'll have a good season ahead. So what do you say to those business owners who say they rely on the tourism 
season and who are concerned that a number of tourist accommodation providers will no longer be providing beds to tourists who want to come to Sligo Town? We have to step back and have a look at all towns, and all towns are different. So a town like Sligo that has that diverse offering can handle stresses in a sector. But a town that doesn't have that or a town that is predominantly a tourist season town or towns that just have people there for, for the summer season, I can understand why they may have some concerns. And I think it's very important that the government would step in and help those businesses to, to weather that storm because we want those robust businesses there when the Ukrainian crisis is over to continue to offer the great services they offer to all the tourists that come to, to not only Sligo but to Ireland in general. You also feel that we need to step back and sort of put the numbers of refugees and asylum seekers who've come to Sligo Town in context. Uh, we really do. Um, County Sligo has a population of approximately 65,000 and we have ambitious plans to grow Sligo, to Sligo County to over 75,000 in the next 10 years. We have 1,300 asylum seekers approximately in Sligo. That's a 2% increase and we're looking to grow to by 12 or 15%. So this is actually a good start for us to see what we need to do and what other services, other logistical issues and infrastructural issues we need to sort to help slide. You also go. say that the number of refugees using uh, tourist accommodation here is actually quite small. Yeah, in Sligo, we're very lucky that in Sligo Town we have 950 um, bedrooms across seven hotels and just next door to us the City Hotel has reopened and added another 50 or 60 bedrooms. On top of that, we have 1,750 purpose-built student accommodation rooms in Sligo. So they all help to, to build the stock of, of, retail, of hospitality in Sligo for the summer. So I'm quite comfortable that we're going to have another good season in Sligo. Uh, from Bert Feilin there saying he's quite confident that they're going to have a great uh, season in um, Sligo here. Frank, what do you think? Do you expect that given the capacity restraints on accommodation um, because of the humanitarian response that it is going to have a knock-on impact on tourist numbers here? Do you accept that or not? Well, first of all, can I start on the positive note? Um, the last three or four years, the amount of people who've moved into Sligo in the northwest because of Brexit, because of Covid, you have a new Atlantic Technological University. It's the first university north of the Dublin-Galway line. You have the Hazelwood Distillery, which okay. is going to be the home of Paddy. There's something happening here. I have always said that Sligo now is like the new Galway. There are challenges, but I absolutely would be very optimistic for the future of the tourism season. There are challenges that we've met uh, with people in Bundoorn, uh, in Russell's Point, and there's huge challenges. But, um, you know, I, I, I think there's 3,200 beds in County Sligo uh, and 800 of those beds are taken over by people uh, uh, fleeing uh, the war in Ukraine. So that's what, about 20, 25%? So that's are the figures you have. Now I know you dispute those, Marion. I think it's not so much on disputing, but there's lots of different figures. I mean, the Sunday Business Post gave a figure of 42% and 50% in Donegal and interestingly, Kira, 14% in Dublin. So we see where the majority are coming and that, that's an issue as well. But I'm not going to argue with Frank. There are different sets of figures and because we have nothing definitive. But even if you take it in the middle, it's about one in three. But there are, uh, um, you know, opportunities here. Like, I mean, we did it during COVID. There's time to rally, to do more business in our towns, villages and and, and cities, like maybe not staycation, but to get out there and support is, is that what you centres say like Anthony. And to I think somebody like a, Anthony, you know, get out there, there is opportunities here, Anthony? 
Well, you, the 13,000 of, of the uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, that are here for the Ukrainians have taken up work in the system. They're, they're providing um, great assistance and the tourism and the hospitality industry as well. All right, I just want to well. that Anthony, as yeah. a business owner here, respond to that. Absolutely, and look, at I, I have, I'm luckily enough, I've taken on two Ukrainians and we have a, a brilliant barista working in Hooked. Um, that's in, that, that's that. But at the same time, you have to realise and look at the reality of the situation. The situation is, we've just gone through the figures. The amount of beds that are taken up is going to have an effect on tourism. Do you accept that, Frank, that it will have an effect? Of course it'll have an effect on tourism, but we have to look at it from a different angle. We've got to look at it, maybe that uh, people might go more day trips. But, but yes, it, it, it does affect tourism because you're, you're down to 25, uh, 25% less beds. But, you know, uh, again... We're in a very, very difficult situation. What, what's very frightening about this is, what is the alternative? You know, where, where are they actually going to put the people to make well, you happy? Yeah, that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you, Frank. I mean, by the end of the year, I think, uh, in general, across the country, we're talking about 25%, I think, of all um, beds, hotels, guest houses, B&Bs, are being used to provide uh, humanitarian um, accommodation. Where do you think that figure is going to be by the end of the year? What's the government's plan? What's their target? Well, I do know that there is uh, the government uh, are, are working with all the various stakeholders to come up uh, with a plan to try to ensure that we provide alternatives. It's not going to be easy, but there's a lot so of... So they, they haven't at this point. I mean, unfortunately, Ireland has recognised that too, haven't they? They've said you need a more balanced approach. There is an over-reliance on this type of accommodation. Well, what happened in Russell Point was very, very difficult because there should have been a balanced approach that instead of taking over one hotel, that's, you know, all the accommodation in a small village. That does cause the problems. It needs to be more mm. balanced around the country. But we are in a very, very difficult situation when you mm. would have said a year and a half ago that 100,000 people would come into our country into, 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 and to try to accommodate them in very, very difficult times. I'm just conscious that I suppose the, the, the answer for a lot of this is, to, is that alternative accommodation. And there has been a lot of talk about modular housing, that we need to move um, these individuals into accommodation that is more suitable than staying in a hotel or a guest house or a B&B long term. I had seen a park, as a Dooley Park, park. Yes. identified last July as a potential place for modular housings. Have any of those houses started, been completed? They have where started. They have started and they are going to house about 200 people, I think, um, when they're finished. The problem with modular housing, though, Kira, mm -hmm. is that the modular houses are being made in the same factory that everybody in Europe is trying to buy, them for, buy from them. So we are in competition with other European countries that are trying to look for places. The other issue we have here is that we still have 1,500 people on the housing list. And they, rightly or wrongly, feel very aggrieved about the fact that they're still waiting to get accommodation themselves where the uh, Ukrainians are coming in and seem to be giving um, accommodation over their heads. Yeah. That's how they feel about it. Just, but isn't there a very difficulty, though, I suppose, I'm just conscious yes. of mine when we're having this conversation, isn't there really difficult to hear that, that you can really stoke up uh, you know, a sort of an anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment by having nobody... a conversation and by pitting you know, yes, Irish people exactly. on the housing list, as you say, against those who, are, who are seeking protection here, who need our help. deal with that. And it was a, an amendment I put forward last week on the Sinn Féin eviction bill was that we already have flexibility in the planning system whereby if the public authorities want to build modular homes they don't have to get planning permission and I suggested 
why don't we put that same flexibility in place for the public authorities, government and our local authorities for all temporary housing, for all modular homes, or yeah. for doing up existing housing for everybody? And at least that all might right. move us faster. Frank, can I just respond to that? There's a lot of incentives, like you have the vacant uh, homes uh, incentive, you have also helped the buy scheme. But also, look, the local authorities are working with the... There's one aspect, and I just see it here, nobody's ever talked about it, is that the, the ATU now have been given a go-ahead to build apartments. You know, and if they can build apartments, okay. four or five hundred apartments, that could take the pressure off in places like Sligo. And that was passed by the okay. Minister only a month ago. So these are a lot of different issues, a lot of different incentives. It could help address a very, very difficult problem. Uh, one of the calls that was made, um, I think, was by the Ross's Point Association. It was made by um, Finbar Phelan, who we spoke to a little earlier, was that those businesses that have a very you know, legitimate case here, who do feel that they are going to be um, impacted negatively because there will be less tourists staying in you know, the towns or villages or cities, that they should be compensated in some way. Is that a realistic well, we, ask, Frank, do you think? Well, we have retained the 9% uh, VAT rate until next September. That's a bit of a help. But yes, there have been incentives during the COVID with the PUP and the TWSS and the CRSS. Yes. And I would certainly support that. And we have uh, discussed this with, with them, to support that for areas that are impacted really uh, uh, seriously, like Russell Point, that there would be but some would be... incentive, target incentive. Anthony, do you, yeah, do you feel could, that's going to be forthcoming? I suppose if I could go back to one point there, and, and, and Frank made it. Right, we've taken in 100,000 refugees. We have a national crisis, homeless crisis. We have 3,500 uh, children living in emergency accommodation. We also have a mor moral obligation. We do have moral And there's 100%. I totally understand that. And we do need to take them in, and we do need to take care of them. Oh, right. But I don't think the government... The government looked at a blinker, blinkered approach. They took oh, right. in... There's, there's no uh, idea as regards when it's going to stop. Okay. You know? I, no, and I think, I think in, in fairness, um, many people who will be watching this evening think that the government have taken the right approach in, in encouraging people to come here and to, to seek refuge. What I would say, to follow on what, from what Frank said there, is that if you take the likes of Ross's point, we keep okay. coming back to it because it's a very specific example. There are other places, Bundoran right. is in trouble as well. But for any business that can show that its turnover is down by... 30, 40 percent, just like the, what they call the TBES, the Temporary Business Energy Support Scheme, put something similar in place. At least that those businesses know that they will get okay. some assistance okay. from the state this year that they could survive until next year, when hopefully things will be better. But look, right. I, I don't want to sound negative. Sligo's a great place. What do they say? Sligo is surprising. Come and visit. <laughs> All right, we're going to have to leave it there. And my thanks to my panel, um, Anthony. Um, you won't be joining us in part three, but the rest of my panel will be. We're going to take a break. Uh, do join Claire back in Dublin very shortly. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash 
Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, the Republic of Ireland has been in action tonight against France in a Euro 2024 qualifier, but lost 1-0. I'm joined from the Aviva Stadium by our sports reporter, Anne-Marie Keegan. In the end, it was 1-0, France getting the goal there. But lots of, of positives, I suppose, to be taken from this, uh, this performance by the Irish team, Anne-Marie. Yeah, that's right, Claire. If ever there was a heroic 1-0 loss, I suppose tonight is the night. Ireland came so close to getting that equaliser through Nathan Collins late on, but a fantastic save from the France goalkeeper kept it at 1-0 to France. So we start the group with a loss, our road to Euro 2024. is not starting the way we would have liked it to, but speaking to Stephen Kenny and the players just minutes ago in the tunnel, Stephen Kenny said he's proud of his players. He couldn't have asked for much more from them. Captain James Coleman said this will give the team great confidence confidence as they head forward now in the group. They got Gibraltar and Greece to come in June in the next block of games. So certainly plenty of positives to take from tonight into those two games. Hey, Anne-Marie, uh, thank you for bringing us uh, that match report and the latest there from the Aviva. We do appreciate it. Um, well, I'm joined now by Irish Examiner political correspondent Kira Phelan and journalist Michael O'Regan because we're going to talk now about some of uh, the other big stories of the day and a big week ahead in the Dáil, in fact, because we have... Um, the eviction ban really rolling on into yet another week, Kira, and the Labour Party bringing forward its motion of no confidence on Wednesday. Now, how does this differ, do you think, politically from what we saw last week, Sinn Féin uh, putting forward their, their own uh, motion regarding the eviction ban? Yeah, so last week, obviously, we saw that motion by Sinn Féin. It wasn't legally binding, but essentially um, it put pressure on the government uh, to come out and get the support of independent TDs, which we saw the regional mm. independent TDs, um, eight of them of that group, going, looking for specific measures. And they, the government, um, you know, felt pressure there, even though that they could have stood their ground, given that the motion wasn't legally binding. It just gave an insight into how important and under pressure the government are feeling on this matter and essentially then it was passed there was a little bit of annoyance of it and the opposition parties want to keep the pressure on the government as you said the Labour Party has used its private members time to put forward this motion of no confidence however the government has placed a counter motion of confidence in itself it will be debated on Wednesday morning and a vote will follow it thereafter and it's likely uh, the government does have a majority mm -hmm. in the Dáil albeit just by one TD it's very thin support um, but they are likely to um, you know uh, win this vote in the Dáil but again they will have to receive an absolute bruising and battering mm -hmm. in the doll from opposition TDs again for another week. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the point of it. Uh, Labour, in fact, the party does believe it will be tighter than the government thinks, Michael. Do you think the Taoiseach is right to be as confident as, as he's making out around all of this? He was speaking last week and he was saying he was, he was confident that this would be won easily by, by government, that they wouldn't uh, be faced. Yeah, I do. I think he motion. is because he's a political realist. And let's take a deep breath here. Nobody in Leinster House wants a general election. Even Sinn Féin, who could do very well, uh, I think they want to see the uh, redrawing of the constituencies uh, in the summer, extra, uh, extra TDs, potential to win extra seats, local elections next year to blood candidates, and particularly if you're a government backbencher and even disaffected from your party mm. uh, and all that, you don't want a general election. So. What we're witnessing now really is the theater of politics. I mean, if the three parties in government and opposition, they'd be doing the same thing. Above all, Labour doesn't want an election uh, at this point. You know, they're rebuilding, they had a good conference. Uh, they'd be looking to the local elections to get some potential TDs elected. And you don't, Turkeys don't vote for Christmas, particularly in March. Imagine canvassing door to door in this weather. Yeah, do you think it's going to be as clear cut as that? Because we don't really know from all the independents mm. what way they're going to vote as yet. Now, whether or not the government win this um, is another thing. But in terms of getting independents on side and, and uh, you know, how they're going to make it all possibly quite difficult for government um, in the next couple of days is yeah. another thing. Yeah, I think that he shook saying a significant margin, although you're calling him a realist, I think a significant margin was a bit of a push. Um, we know Verona Murphy isn't going to vote confidence uh, mm. in the government. Um, Michael Fitzmaurice has said no, but the regional group that supported uh, the government last week, they are they don't have their minds made up. Now, like I said, there is a majority, the government still have a majority in the Dáil, but it will show exactly how popular this coalition government actually is. And if it's the case, down the line where the government is facing crucial votes like this again, um, they may not have all the independents on side. And it, it's the independents calling the shots here, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, like I said, um, Claire, last week, the fact that they bowed to pressure when it wasn't legally binding, um, it just goes to show that the independent TDs could go back uh, looking for more off the, gov um, off the government. I mean, the question here, rather than like what's happening in the Dáil, Michael, is, is does the government have the support of the people on all of this? Um, the wider question. Right now, how do you assess the national mood? When it came to that decision, you know, to lift the eviction ban, um, it seemed uh, to kind of catch the government almost by surprise, uh, the reaction, very visceral and quite vocal reaction uh, to that decision. Yeah. And the anger. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite astonishing the government, that the government didn't use the period uh, where the ban existed to bring in measures uh, to help people, uh, you know, who will now be facing eviction. And, you know, the mad scramble mm. to, to bring proposals before the Dáil, uh, just as, uh, as the eviction was about to be lifted, that was very bad politics. It was very bad government. There's huge anger out there uh, among people and justifiable anger. Uh, you know, housing is a big issue. Uh, young people can't buy houses. Uh, the cost of renting is appalling, appallingly high. Some people in very vulnerable circumstances facing eviction. Uh, all the more reason, by the way, why if you're even semi-detached from the government, uh, you know, you won't want an election 
in the current, uh, in the current climate. Yeah, and on this, is there anger within the coalition and within, um, you know, government circles on how it's all been handled, Kira? What's the sense of how the government is acting and, I suppose, reacting um, to this lifting of the eviction ban? You can always tell the mood um, within government when you have backbench TDs and junior ministers picking up the phone to a journalist rather than the journalist picking up the phone to get the mood and the feeling within government. And that's what happened to me today, that there's people ringing to voice uh, their unease. And there is unease within government. What are they saying? Um, there is, you know, some unease and disquiet about the fact that the senior coalition, uh, sorry, the senior cabinet ministers that made this decision have not been out on TV or radio uh, defending their decision and have instead rolled out backbench TDs and junior, junior ministers to defend this, both uh, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and Green uh, Party uh, backbench senior figures and junior ministers. Is there a strategy there? Well, if I was working as a, a, a person working to, you know, on the public comms team for the government, you'd be advising the senior coalition um, ministers not to go out um, on TV and radio because of the scrutiny that they're facing, but they're willing to send out uh, those in the junior ranks. And there is unease about that, that, you know, if you have made a decision, you're standing by it, you're defending it in the doll, then you should be able to have the confidence to go out and explain to the people why they have done exactly this. Exactly why you're doing it. And we keep hearing this over again from government, uh, Michael, that this is theatrics that, you know, the likes of Labour and Sinn Féin are trying to make capital from the housing crisis. But could anything of concrete benefit come from all of this? Like, we've already got the government's counter-response. We've already got them scrambling um, to bring about measures and the independents throwing in their list of demands. Like, in, in the overall situation of solving the house, housing crisis, is there anything good um, to come from this, you know, Dole Fraca and how we're seeing it playing out politically. Well, it, it, it is putting the focus on housing, which is a good thing. And it, did it, it ever go away? It, it won't go away between now and the next election. But it might galvanise the government into doing something, uh, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, fairly concrete, uh, on, on house building. Uh, it's quite astonishing that when this country was an economic basket case in the early days of the new state, into the 50s, the 60s and the 70s, Governments built social housing, and uh, now they seem seem trapped, uh, you know, relying on the private sector, etc. But I think the government will understand that uh, politically, mm -hmm. the European and local elections next year uh, will be an opportunity for the public to vent their anger on the government parties. I think they'll be very, very conscious of that. Yeah, it's a pressure there as well, Kira. For and we've heard it coming for people for profit now, whether the government are listening to their proposals or not. Mm. But this idea of a national house building, you know, a state kind of funded house building scheme, if you like, mm. um, that goes beyond what the government is doing at the moment under its housing for all program. Yeah, I mean, the government have been, you know, quite adamant that their housing for all plan is what's worked, uh, is working. They'll come out and say the amount of money that they're pumping into it. They'll also say that the opposition party parties haven't provided any, um, you know, housing plan with substance and that they believe what they're doing is the way to tackle this. It all remains to be seen. As Michael said, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the local elections later this year. 
year. Um, but no, they are adamant in the sense that what they're doing at the moment is working. It will take time, they need supply, and they're also drawing the attention to, to the external factors that are at play regarding you know, inflation, the war in Ukraine, etc. But that's not going to uh, keep the electric happy who are struggling with high rents and can't afford to buy a house. And we're hearing from the ESRI, in fact, today that house prices and rents will continue to rise, certainly over the next 12 months, and probably will increase uh, and continue to increase over the next two to three years. Um, so that does go on. But there we will leave it after the break. We'll be back with Kira in Sligo. Do stay with us. where we're going to talk now about crime and policing in the region. Well, earlier I spoke to Michael Walsh, a cousin of Tom Nyland, who's recovering after a violent incident at his County Sligo home last year. Three people are currently before the courts charged in relation to this. He doesn't really have a life. He's lying there in the bed. or Well, they do take him out sometimes and put him in a... In a kind of a chair and he's leaning back and he's just looking around at the walls he can't he can't move and um, he's he can't eat or drink he's you know tube fed um, and he tries I can see him he does try and move you can see him moving his shoulders and he's kind of looking down at his hands and he, he just can't figure out why he can't move his hands um, he has no feeling you know from the elbows down and the same with his legs, he has no feeling from the knees down. Um, he just doesn't have a life. Uh, and still in hospital. I know he's he, been moved from ICU and he's now in another unit. Yeah. But still in hospital. He's in the acute stroke unit at the moment, and uh, you know, which is like similar to intensive care, but he's he's not critical. So. Um, Can he communicate with you? <clears throat> he doesn't communicate with me unless I put questions to him. And he may nod, he may shake his head, and he may he may try and speak. <coughs> Sorry. And um, he has the tracheostomy, so you can imagine, like, he's got tubes and things all over the place. And um, he has to, in order to try and speak, he has to have a little plastic insert, uh, speech valve, to call it, to speak. And even then, he, he's, you know, he, he couldn't say any more than a sentence. And he's constantly um, being treated for, um, well, he, they have to use suction on his throat and his mouth and everything. Um, and he can't speak while he's in that condition, so they have to keep coming in and clearing him. And uh, he may try and speak then, or he may manage to say a sentence, but usually it's nothing that we can really understand, you know, sometimes. And I know you visit him frequently, as does your sister, do you think he is aware of what his situation is? Do you feel he is distressed or, or saddened by it? He's very distressed. He's very aware. Like I said, he's always, he's, you know, he can see his face. He can't figure out why he can't move. And uh, he gets very distressed. And he's, he's very depressed that he, can't, uh, that he can't move or he can't really communicate, or that he's in a hospital bed, you know, Every day he wakes up, he's, he's, sat, he's lying there and he can't move or he can't really speak. I mean, it's bound to get to him. I mean, the problem is he has an awareness that he is in that condition. And that makes things worse in a way, you know. Um, and what and do you think the future is for Tom now? There's no future. The, the, 
team, the medical team has said that, you know, he'd probably go into long-term care and, um, you know, he'll never see home again probably, you know, that, that's it. He's not going anywhere, you know, so. And how has that been for you and the family, 15 months on to see that this is what his recovery looks like and this is what his future is going to be? Well, what can you feel like? You feel totally helpless. Um, you know, the realisation that um, even though he's, he's alive, but he'll never move again. Uh, he'll never be out of there. We'll never have any fun anymore. Won't be able to go anywhere. Um, he's not living in your he's not. He's not living, you know. He's um, just existing. And it's a poor existence, as I said, because he's aware of his condition. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, you know. <clears throat> What is the family's wish for Tom now? Uh, we realise that there's, you know, we can wish all we want. Uh, there's people praying that he will recover, but I can't see it, you know, after this length of time, like it's been well over a year now and very little progress. I mean, he survived, but that's just what it is. It's just survival, it's uh, not living and, um, I don't think there's any future. What can we do? Just watch him slowly deteriorate, you know? He's, he's not able to move. What can you do? What can you say to him? So difficult for somebody who was a healthy, oh, well, vibrant, fun individual. Yeah. That, that's just it, like the contrast between how he was beforehand, you know, very, uh, and he had retired and he was never as busy. Physically, he was always building walls or whatever or helping the neighbours he was full into that like you know everybody would uh, tell you that Tom would help them out and get involved in you know some heavy duty work and he was physically very strong um, but to see him so helpless now you know in, in, in the bed it's it's shocking shocking now yeah. what can you do Michael thank you for speaking to us yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. Michael Walsh speaking to me here a little earlier this evening while my panel of Marion Harkin, Frank Feehan and Claire Ronan are still with me. You can hear, you know, the distress in Michael's voice there. I'm wondering how the wider community feels after what happened to Tom Nyland. Absolutely devastated. Um, this is a very, very close-knit community um, and Michael is, or I beg your pardon, Tom Nyland is one of the most popular members of the community. He was much loved, well known for going and helping neighbouring farmers. You know, he had a full-time job. He, he, uh, he farmed in his spare time and he used to help the neighbours out. He was, and mind their dogs when they were on holidays. Like when I was out there around the time of the um, uh, incident, uh, the incident um, the way that he was spoken about with such great affection, people were shocked. And one person that stood out at the time was Father Michael Gilroy. He's the parish priest, a great friend of Tom's. And he really held everyone together. And 
they came out in their droves to help look for any information or any, anything that might have been dropped on the road to help the guards as much as they could. But they're a vulnerable community, Kira. Is that how they are today? I, I think there is a, a guard presence in the guard station and screen. It's only a couple of days a week. And unfortunately, the response time is, is long. So if you are out in that area and something happens and you dial 999, it takes between 20 minutes and 25 minutes for a car to get to you. And that is too long. How have the local community changed or have they changed, you know, how they live their lives? Well, I think at the, initially, and a lot of them would say this, initially they were very conscious of locking their doors. A lot of people independently got CCTV cameras in and reviewed their security themselves. And then, like everything, time moves on and people forget. But there's still, there is still fear. There are people, I spoke to some of the guards, they said there are people still afraid, very afraid. And we probably need a larger Garda presence in parts of rural Ireland. In fact, there's no probably about it. It is definitely needed. Yeah, because you do see there has been a marked increase, Marion, in recorded crimes in particular rural areas like Ballymotor, Gertine, in Sligo. Right. And it is a worrying trend for people, isn't it? It is. And there was a second wave of crime there recently. And certainly the Garda presence was increased after it. I mean, community policing is at the heart, has to be at the heart of everything we do. And, you know, Claire's right. People did feel very vulnerable. And I spoke to Michael Clark, who's the Cahirlook of Sligo County Council. And I just asked him because he lives out there. He knows everybody. And I asked him, what was the real feeling on the ground? And he said that people are not so much living in fear, though obviously some people may be, but it's more that people are very conscious of their security, whether it's security cameras, alarms, text alert systems. I mean, they've just launched a new one in County Leitrim at the, I think, the end of February, and we will be launching a countywide one in Sligo. All of those things give people a sense of security, but nothing gives people a sense of security like having their community Garda in place, somebody they know, somebody they trust, somebody who goes to the primary school and the active age groups that's known in the community. Yeah, and there was a story in the weeks um, after the Tom Nyland case um, of a, a woman who had been burgled and she said she rang the local Gardaí here, it was reported in the Irish Independent, and it took three hours for the Gardaí to respond. Um, do you think people can feel more reassured that that isn't the case anymore, given where Garda numbers are at, Frank Fegan? Well, first of all, um, the, the, the Tamil Island uh, crime was horrific and uh, t t such a respected um, man of the community and it did cause huge fear and huge shock. And I brought uh, those fears to the Minister of Justice at the time and to the Garda Commissioner. And, um, you know, we need to tackle rural crime. It's central to this government's goal of building stronger, safer communities. And in the budget of this year, we have an unprecedented £2.14 which is allocated, which will bring in an extra 1,000 guards uh, next year, also with 400 uh, new Garda staff. But yeah, we well, need and to we know there have been many, many we doubts raised um, from the GRA and from those within the Garda Shikana, whether or not those numbers will be achieved, frankly. Well, there are challenges uh, in recruitment. Um, we have full employment and the Garda is a very uh, tough job. And a lot of people are beginning to say, do I need this? It's, it's, it's hugely uh, a, a very respectful job, but it, it, it is challenging. Uh, and there are issues there. But, you know, we are giving uh, 2.14 billion 
and uh, that is exactly and it's up to the Garda Commissioner to, to, uh, to, to allocate the resources but I would be happy you did enough ask, didn't you mind um, about Garda vehicles in the area you asked the Minister for Justice about this recently what yes, did he I say did. and it's not just about recruitment Frank is right there's a lot of money going in but it's about even retaining the Garda we have but I think more important than that is the model of policing we have I, I am really you know concerned that it has to be real community policing. People need to see them on the ground. That's what reassures the community. Yes, isn't it? and I know Drew Harris is looking at community policing. I have a concern that some of the models he's looking at are maybe based on what, what happened in London, what's right. good elsewhere. It needs to fit the models here. It needs to be what people know, recognise. Right. And you spoke about Tom Nyland and his community, the man he was. The Gardaí have to be the same in, in their communities. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to my guests and all my panel and to everyone in Sligo for making us feel so welcome this evening. Back to you in Dublin, Claire. Thanks, Kira, And that's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. From all the late team here, good night. Take care.